0: Who wants them to keep going? I don't have to preach today. That is better than a movie, I tell you that. Uh, just reminded as I thought about um, uh, Helen's reference to the kids going downstairs and summer movie. Does sound it does sound interesting, doesn't it? Uh, maybe some of you wanted to volunteer this morning in children's ministry. Um, but it did make me remember how grateful we ought to be for our children's ministry workers here at Skyview who give um, so much of their time on a weekly basis to help shape the hearts and minds of our children to love Jesus and to live for Him. And um, at Skyview over the summer, uh, we we do our best to offer a, a wee sabbatical to some of our volunteers and workers who give throughout the year And uh, perhaps this morning, I want to just invite you uh, to give God thanks and to express your thanks uh, to our children's ministry workers and Pastor Jen when she comes back uh, so that they know how much we love and appreciate them. Amen. I want to invite you to pray with me As we prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God, and this morning I'm reading from Matthew chapter 14, verses 30, oh sorry, 13 through 21. And what am I doing? I need my glasses to see back there. (laughs) Would you join me? It's a new prayer. Almighty God, feed us with your Word that we might be filled with the bread of life. Awaken and illumine us by your Word. Amen. Matthew chapter 14, reading from verse 13 through to 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, that is, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist was executed, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, They followed Him on foot from the towns. And when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and He had compassion for them, and He cured their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to Him and said, this is a deserted place. And the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. <laughs> Let me repeat that because that's funny. We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. The word of the Lord. Just by show of hands this morning, who is an introvert? Hmm. <laughs> Introverts don't like that question. It's testing the introversion a little bit. Um, By show of hands, as an introvert, (laughs) I'm helping you this morning. How many of you enjoy being by yourself? You know, some of you are raising your hands as introverts, and I have some questions for you afterwards whether that's actually who you are. But nonetheless, the discipline of solitude is a key discipline for all those who seek after God, says Ruth Haley Barton. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it would seem that Barton's perspective holds true. Jesus often withdraws to deserted places, to places away from the crowds and the wants and the needs of people, to be alone. Often when He is alone, He is praying. Perhaps we could go as far as to say, in all likelihood, whenever Jesus withdraws by Himself, He is in all likelihood communing with the Father. But here in our text, Jesus withdraws again. And he withdraws as the gospel author would want us to see in response to news he received that John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, the one who we believe is related to Jesus, is executed because of the pride and the arrogance of a ruler who makes a commitment to a woman that he would give her anything she wants because she danced so well. (laughs) And when she asks for the head of John the Baptist, he finds himself this, this dynamic prophetic voice, this man who didn't quite understand who he was preparing the way for but was certainly trying his best to be whom God has called him to be. When Jesus hears that he died, Jesus withdraws to a solitude, a lonely place. I am not sure whether early in my life, when I was younger, and I am still young, Amen? (laughs) I don't know sometimes what to make of your laughter, but nonetheless, I'll keep going. Um, I don't think I appreciated solitude. I don't think I enjoyed as much to be on my own. And I would say to you as a testimony before I get into the text, and perhaps as an invitation to recognize that solitude is one of the ways in which Jesus shows us to live well in God's kingdom. Solitude for Jesus was a withdrawal from the places and the expectations and the demands that oftentimes becomes all-consuming. People always wanted things from Jesus. Moms, can I get an amen? Amen. People always had claims upon his time. In fact, I feel a little bit annoyed, a little bit irritated at the crowd. You know, they must have heard what had happened to John the Baptist as much as Jesus heard what has happened to John the Baptist. But but somehow, even in Jesus' own sorrow, withdrawing from the crowds, perhaps just to deal with that reality, recognizing that the one who's prepared the way for him probably shows him the way that he would also go. They, they, they don't seem to care enough. They don't show enough compassion to let Jesus be. And they run on ahead of him and meet him as his boat lands. A couple of things as a side comment that I've been learning as I've been practicing solitude is that in solitude I allow God to remind me that my identity is ultimately to be found in His grace and not in the opinion or the expectations or the demands of anyone else. I've learned that when I'm allowed alone that there is no Excuse, there is no interruption to come before God honestly. There is a sense in which solitude can can bring out within me that which actually matters and I'm actually becoming attentive, which is perhaps the greatest gift of solitude is that we learn to listen when we are by ourselves to the voice and to the leading of God. And those who spend time alone learn this lesson that is so important that prayer is so much more than our petitions. It is the ability to quiet ourselves in faith before a holy God and to hear His Word for us. Now, solitude is not the end. Some of you introverts are going, yes, <laughs> this is good preaching. <laughs> I can go home and tell everybody to leave me alone because pastors do said solitude is a spiritual practice. But Jesus withdrew so that he would be able to not only hear from the Father, but as we learn in Mark chapter 1, that he is able to return to his work remembering what God has called him to do. It is often in solitude that we are reminded not only that prayer is about attentiveness to God, but we are reminded that God has a will for our lives. And when we do not spend time alone in the presence of God, We will allow the lesser wills, including our own, to become our primary purpose for life. Jesus withdraws and the crowds run Him down. They move fast enough to meet Him as His boat lands. And their lack of compassion, if I could put it this way, is met With the compassion of Christ. And one biblical scholar puts it this way before the outward and visible works of power that Jesus would do, like healing the sick, comes the inward, inviolable work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need, despite his own desire to be alone. It is powerful. Powerful to see Jesus as this man who who mourns the loss of a family member and a friend. To see Jesus as human, desiring to not be with the demands of the crowds, just desiring to be by himself, and yet, with all that is happening inside him, He still is able to discern the needs of others. And the Scripture uses the term, he is moved with compassion. In fact, I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus was not the only one that heard of John's execution. Do you remember that John had disciples himself and that some of those disciples started to follow Jesus? It could very well be that the disciples, along with Jesus, were feeling the same sense of grief and loss, same sense of uncertainty, for what perhaps would happen to them. And as they look at Jesus, they don't just see a mourning Savior. They don't just see a Jesus who withdraws from the crowds to be away from them, but they see a Christ that in His own challenge, in His own circumstance, in His own perhaps, if I could say it this way, sense of loss is still moved by compassion toward the needs of others. You know why I say that? I say that because the disciples start to think in compassionate ways. I know I like to beat up on a disciple every now and then, makes me feel better. I know I only have 2,000 years of looking back at this story to kind of feel better. I often say that if I was there, I would make the same dumb mistakes and perhaps even worse. And so these disciples, however, in this moment, starts to think compassionately like Jesus does. <laughs> I know we've heard, we've heard this preached before. We've heard it said, you know, they, they missed the point here. But, but let's, let's give them some credit. They start to look beyond themselves and they start to pay attention. To the needs around them. Now, the scripture describes the crowd this way Are you still with me? Can you say amen? Amen. I don't have my glasses on, and right now, some of you are looking so worried and bothered. 5,000 men, plus women and children. I mean, that's a lot of people, that's a lot of need. I mean, let's give the disciples some credit. They are in a remote place, maybe a couple of miles from the closest town. Hungry people can move from adulation to anger real quick. (laughs) Some of you need to eat regularly. You're not nice when you don't. These disciples discern the great need. The great amount of people, and let's give them some credit, they think that the compassionate thing to do is to send them before it's too late to surrounding towns to buy for themselves that which they would need. Now, let me be honest if I had a board member on my church board that did this, I would pat them on the back. I would say, Well done. Sam, you're thinking beyond yourself. You're anticipating the need. No crowd has yet started to complain and murmur that their stomachs are grumbling. You have anticipated, given some forethought. Well done, good and faithful servant. But Jesus responds differently to the proposed plan to send them away. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that in His ministry, in His presence, the kingdom has drawn near. And in this text, we see perhaps in a way we haven't seen before, Jesus trying to teach His disciples what it means to believe that the kingdom has come near. You know what the text teaches us? The text teaches us two things. I have three points, two things. That's the way I still preach five points, but it's not. It's just two things. No laughter. Too soon after last week. <laughs> uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples two things. One, he's saying that when the kingdom draws near, when the kingdom draws near to people, we don't send them away. We don't point them to some other resource. We we don't say, go and figure it out for yourself. When the kingdom comes near, not only do we not send people away, but Jesus is saying this, when the kingdom draws near, the physical and the spiritual needs of people are being met. When the kingdom breaks in, not only Do we not send people away that are in need, despite how many there may be, and how significant the needs may seem? Because when the kingdom draws near, the King Jesus is present, and where Jesus is present, the impossible becomes possible. And so, Jesus says, I know you've got a good plan, Richard. That was a great thought, to send them off. But I say to you, you feed them. Ah, I think <laughs> that the solution Jesus has in mind is not just about meeting the needs of the crowd, but transforming the perspective of his disciples. Jesus is always doing more than we think he's doing, he sees the need of the crowd. He's ministering to the need of the crowd, but he also discerns that his disciples are yet to live with a kingdom mentality. They are yet to understand that when you live in the ways of Jesus Christ, there's a way in which you respond to need that is not about sending people away. They are yet to learn that when Jesus is present, present in any circumstance, the little we have can become much in the hands of a God who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or even imagine. And then the beauty, the beauty of this passage is what I want to speak about. Jesus <laughs> takes the, the loaves and the two fish. Do I have that right? Is it five loaves and two fish? You know, and uh, this is how it goes. He, he takes it in his hands and he looks up to heaven, it says. He blesses what he has. And then he breaks it. (laughs) Is this bringing up any memory for you? (laughs) And he gives it to them. And he says, you go and give it to the rest. (sighs) Jesus is inviting his disciples to be a part of the miracle, not just to be bystanders to it. Jesus is teaching His disciples that in the kingdom of God, those who desire to participate are the ones who begin to live in the kingdom. And so, in this Eucharistic formula of looking to heaven, of taking that which is given, of breaking it after he blessed it, and giving it to his disciples to meet the needs of others. We see the way in which the kingdom still works to this day. If you have a pen and a notepad, you may want to write down the next sentence. Or you may not. I believe, as I studied this text, that the way in which we learn to participate in the kingdom is that when we are moved with compassion to do something about the needs of others, we offer what we have to Jesus. And we learn to trust that when He takes our little blesses it, breaks it. He gives it back to us so that we can bless others. And what we have through the power of God becomes a source of blessing unto many. So how do we learn to participate? How do we participate in what Jesus is doing? How do we respond to His invitation? I think it begins by recognizing what keeps many of us from not participating in the kingdom, and that is simply this. We begin with what we have and don't have, and not with who God is. The disciples are moved with compassion, they come up with a plan, a proposal. <laughs> have you ever propose something to God? I got an idea for you. This is how you can make things happen. I got a plan. I got a way figured out, their plan is derived from a perspective that is focused upon the enormous need and the very little resource. Now, I have to be honest with you that I think if I was to preach this honestly, I have to say that oftentimes... That is my perspective when I look at the problems in our world or even just within our city or community. I tend to think of how significant the things are and how many people are just so much more in need than, than I am, and there's a sense in which it could lead me to, to either two outcomes. One, apathy, I'm just going to, I'm just going to not care or it's going to lead me to a place where I am so weighed down by it that I live a life without hope. And the danger of beginning with what I have and don't have, the danger with beginning with what you have and you don't have, is that it leads us to only two conclusions, either that nothing can be done to change the reality within which we live, or two, that we, we, we are best to just kind of let go of any desire to be a part of something significant. The disciples respond the way most of us would respond, not with a kingdom of God perspective, but a kingdom of Caesar perspective. In the Roman Empire, needs are not met because the emperor is compassionate but because Rome seeks to control people. In the kingdom of Christ, needs are met because God is gracious and compassionate for God so loved this world that He gave. This is the way of the kingdom. God's way of loving is that He gives not only the bread of life, but He gives His very self so that people may have life. And when we begin with who this God is as incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ, we look at the vast needs in our world, not with some kind of sense of we can in our own sake and power do anything to change it, but as we look to Jesus, we become those who recognize that as we put our trust in Him and as we learn to give to Him that which we have, that that which is impossible becomes possible. I think what keeps us from participating is when our perspective is on how much we have and don't have. Some of us don't think that we have enough to have any meaningful contribution to make to most things. That is a lie. Perhaps I'll go as far as to say this is a lie from the depths of the pit of (laughs) hell. Maybe some of us don't feel that we're talented enough. We, we have enough wisdom. We have enough ability. Maybe we don't, we don't feel like we can sing like Dwayne and Christy. You know, I, I was blessed and also convicted as they were singing. I was, Lord, how can I be so blessed and so envious at the same time? <laughs> Maybe some of us feel like we just don't have enough resource. We just don't. Stu, you don't understand, man. I, I look at other people and I just go, they must have more. They, 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 that's why they can do. I had a friend who once says to me, the reason he wants to win the lottery is so that he can be generous. Let me, let me just put it this way. <laughs> I think that if you're not generous with a little, you probably won't be generous with a lot. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus takes little things like mustard seeds and changes things. Jesus seems to say that in the kingdom, that which seems to be meager, that which seems to be easily overlooked, did you hear me last week? That which we can often discount as not that valuable or vital, can become an incredible means of grace in the hands of a God who takes what we have, blesses it, and multiplies it. If we want to participate in the kingdom, we have to begin with who God is. We have to look at Jesus. We have to become uh, the kind of people who who know what we have, but don't use that as a means of pushing people away (laughs) or becoming despondent. And as we learn to do that, I think we begin to learn how to participate in God's kingdom. There's three ways I'm going to offer, and this is it. First, we begin to open our eyes and our hearts to the needs around us. You don't participate in the kingdom without opening your heart and your eyes to the needs around you. I have some questions to help you. Here's the first one. Where is your heart moved? By the needs of others. For whom are your heart broken today? Where do you see need and feel powerless to act upon it? Where are we overwhelmed by the gravity of a situation and can't envision a solution other than to push the problem back on others? It is often in these places, in these moments, in these circumstances, that we begin to recognize that if we are to participate in the kingdom of God, not only should we open our eyes and our hearts to the needs around us, but we ought to open our eyes and our hearts to who Jesus is. Our denomination was formed as a mission to the least of these. In fact, some of our founding fathers were drawn to the slums, or as it was referred to at the turn of the 18th to 19th century, the, the, uh, or the 20th century, uh, Skid Row. those early Nazarenes named themselves Nazarene. Because according to Scripture, Nazarene is the garden place where nothing good comes from. And they thought it important to name themselves that because in naming themselves that, they would be reminded every time they spoke of themselves to others <laughs> of their calling to the least of these. As our denomination has grown in over 160 world areas to this day. And as it had grown, particularly in the Western world, we have seen that progress and success and growth has also meant economic upward mobility. And let me speak very clearly. There is nothing wrong with having enough. But when having enough blinds us to those who don't have, we are not participating in the kingdom. And as our denomination has become in many ways over this last century successful at educating, successful at helping people to become fully alive and needs to be met, so has the temptation grown to forget that to be Christian is to always, always have one's heart and one's eyes open to the need around us. A couple of weeks ago, a man came up to the church right as I came into the office. Um, he uh, He was speaking a language that I wouldn't repeat. Do you know what I mean? And there was no one he was cursing at. He was just cursing. In fact, Jennifer Loire, one of our admin assistants, walked into the church right as I heard this, and I thought, I thought, who's Jennifer talking to that is cursing so bad? Because she had a phone to her ear. And I was about to go out there and reprimand her (laughs) and have a talk to whoever was cursing, and then I realized it was this gentleman. And um, I have to be honest, I... Words matter greatly to me. It's one of the things I've learned later on in life is that I'm sensitive to words. And I think part of it comes with the gift that God gives or the strength of the ability He gives you when, you when you value words. And as a preacher, you have to value words. Uh, words have power, we believe, because of God's Spirit. And, 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 and because of that, sometimes when bad words are spoken, it just, it just upsets this pastor and I remember hearing the words and being just viscerally affected. In fact, I, I, it felt like something weird was happening with my eyesight. Have you ever had a visceral reaction to something like that? <laughs> and I walked outside, and I thought I was composed, and I know that the man probably needs help. And my first response to him was, Sir, would you kindly stop cursing? which just inflamed him more. The first thing he said to me was, are you God? (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) Who are you to tell me anything? And I stood there, feeling vulnerable, feeling out of my depths, not knowing what to say next. He continued his tirade, and he walked across the parking lot, and he said, I had a few parting shots as he looked back. I walked into my office, and I just felt so grieved. I felt so, by one man's need, outdone. By one man's desperate place, feeling so dark and so heavy, That in that moment, I didn't need 5,000 hungry people or 300 parishioners to overwhelm me. There was just one person whose needs seemed beyond my ability. Did I act the way I should? I'm not sure. I, I, I discussed it with our prayer group. I asked them for advice, and I got some good advice. And some of them didn't give me good advice, but, you know, I still love them. And I've been praying about that since that's happened, and here's what I've come up with. I said, Lord, if I was to encounter someone like that again, what does compassion look like? What would it look like for me to take the the little wisdom you've given me to give it to you and to ask you to bless it in such a way that in my response I would not send a man who was already troubled deep within his soul to leave a church. But to perhaps find in some ways a representation of your compassion and your grace and your love. When we begin with what well, we have. We are often overwhelmed. But when we begin with who God is, perhaps things become possible that wasn't possible before. It begins by discerning the needs around us, but also requires that we look at what we have differently. You know, sometimes... We think that what we have is not enough, but I remember the the story of the widow that Jesus points his disciples to and says, I want you to look at something. This widow walks into the temple and puts in just a mite, just a measly little coin, a penny perhaps for us today. And comparing her to the religious leaders who walk in and pour out their many coins, Jesus makes the point, he says, the little she gave is so much more than the much they gave because the little she gave was all she had sometimes it's not about how much but what matters i wonder if we if we really believe this that that as we trust god with what He has given us, He will take care of us, but He would also take care of others. I wonder if, if we start to realize that, that when we look at our lives and we may feel like we just have a couple of loaves and fish, some of us feel those, that fish is perhaps stinky by now, it's been sitting for a while. It's been our security. It's been the thing that we've rested our head on. It's been the way in which we've thought that this is how we define our life. But what if, what if God is inviting us to take that and to give it to Him? And to see that when we do so, God is able to do something in and through us. More times than not, God gives us back that which has held our hearts when our hearts are ready to hold it in the right place. Discerning the needs around us, looking at what we have differently, and then offering what God has given us as a gift to others. This is the Eucharistic formula. The word Eucharist, Eucharista, I think in the Greek, just means Thanksgiving. It has Latin roots as well, but I'm not smart enough to know what those are. But uh, participating in the kingdom takes that formula to this day. Because Jesus shows us that the way in which the world and its deep need of God is met is that he gives himself to the Father. He is broken, though he is blessed. And the Father gives him back to us so that we may give him to others. You know, um, there is a blessing in the breaking although it doesn't often feel that way. And I want to close with a testimony. Can I do that? No? It'd be a weird place to end, but anyway. <laughs> uh, I have been on a journey with the Lord and, and uh, for many years, but over the last year in particular, um, the Lord has started to Invite me to some deeper discernment in my own life. And solitude has been a key part of that. I, I spend time every day, an hour of my time, just listening to the Lord. And um, I've realized that sometimes the broken things in my life keeps me. From the will of God. God has been teaching me this. He's been teaching me that in the kingdom, that which is broken can become a blessing. Over the last um, several months, um, I've done more funerals here at this church than I've done in the 14 years I've been here. I've sat with some of you who asked questions about loss and grief, and then this past week, the unexplainable happens to our brothers across the road. When people ask me about mourning and grief, I can say a lot because I've lost a lot. I lost my mom and dad, brother and sister, in one day in a car accident in fact when i heard about this accident to this plane crash and i heard that six people had died you know what my reaction was how on earth how on earth am i still sane today how on earth do i still have joy today I can't put in words. I can't put in words how that affected me because I just thought to myself, so much life to live, and God, I have lost myself. How, how, how? How? I guess I'm saying, That my presence with you today is not a testimony to my own strength or wholeness, but to the God who takes broken people and blesses others. You may not feel that you are good enough or have what it takes. You may think that one day when you win, the lottery of wholeness that you'll be ready to participate in the kingdom. But let me just say to you today, where you are right now and what you have and don't have is only a hindrance if you do not believe that in the hands of a magnificent Savior, who you are can become a means of grace and blessing to others. God uses ordinary and sometimes even broken people to bring about His plan. Father, today I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the hope that it brings. I thank You that You invite us not just to be observers to Your kingdom, but to participate we often don't participate. <laughs> we often think that we don't have what it takes. We don't have enough. But Father, we learn from your word today that you are able to take everything and make it beautiful. You supplied not only the needs of thousands, but there was left over. <laughs> You, you, you bless in such a way as to say, I am enough for all the crowds and I'm enough for Israel and all of its brokenness. And today you are enough for us. Help us to leave here with a sense of optimism that who we are and what we have in your hands can be a blessing to others, to a world that is filled with need, and people who desire to meet you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.